0: Welcome to Bible Breath, where we dig into the Word of God to catch our breath for whatever is coming next. We're continuing to talk about four key biblical concepts, concepts that come up again and again in Scripture and are really foundational for our understanding of the entire Bible. Sin, grace, faith, and works. Today we're talking about grace, what it is, how God showed it, and why it's really good news for absolutely everyone. Last time, as we talked about sin, we discussed how everything got so messed up. Today, we talk about why there's hope and how God gives hope to us. He gives us hope by grace, by giving us grace. And to talk about grace, I would like to talk about the Golden Gate Bridge. The Golden Gate Bridge is in the city of San Francisco in the state of California in the United States. It's one of the most famous bridges in the world. When they were constructing the Golden Gate Bridge, I believe it was back in the 1930s, it was um, it was a difficult task. The workers got a little timid starting out making the bridge for the same reason I would get very timid <laughs> trying to make this bridge because they were on the highest, highest levels and they didn't want to fall. And because they didn't want to fall, uh, they were very careful. They went very slowly. And because of that, because all the workers were very afraid of dying by falling from these very high um, <laughs> high elevations, um, It slowed the project down and they were very much behind schedule, but the person who was constructing the bridge didn't want it to be behind schedule. So the story goes, he decided to add something to the installation of the bridge. If you look at some of the old pictures of the construction of the Golden Gate Bridge, underneath the bridge as it's being constructed, you will see a large net that was installed on the bottom of the bridge. And the net was there to catch anyone who fell. And apparently, The net, just the presence of the net, made everyone feel safe enough that they started working at a better pace, started getting everything done, and they started working very, very confidently, knowing that if they happened to fall, something would catch them. And it worked so well that eventually they finished ahead of schedule. Even if they were completely fallen, no ability to help themselves, the net would catch them. And that's kind of what grace is. We'll talk about how God does the same thing for us. Last time, we ended by looking at the mathematical equation of our sins, that when we are plus sin and we are lacking holiness, we earn eternal death. The wages of sin is death. And yet that fact didn't take away God's desire to have us with him for eternity. First Timothy chapter 2 says, God, our Savior, wants all people to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. He still desires that all people be saved. And when I say all people, I mean all people. Like think of the worst possible people that you could imagine—people who have done the worst sins and inflicted the most pain. For people of my era, we often think of a man named Jeffrey Dahmer. Jeffrey Dahmer was uh, was a well-known person. Uh, about the time that I was in uh, high school, late late grade school, and he was eventually captured and convicted of multiple murders and murders in with just in the most heinous, sick, disgusting ways. He was sentenced to prison and he was going to spend the rest of his life in prison, but people hear the name Jeffrey Dahmer and they often just get very sick to their stomach. But you think about a person like that and if the Bible passage is true, that God wants all people to be saved, it means that even somebody like him, that God still desires that somebody whose sins are so obvious to everybody, that he still desires that that they be saved. And whether or not you think you would have that desire, the Bible says that God does, which is good news for all of us. If God desires that even somebody like Jeffrey Dahmer be saved, then it means that God desires that even on our worst day, when he sees that, he still desires that we are saved. And we see that all the way back in the beginning with the very first sin. After Adam and Eve sinned, when they ate the fruit that they weren't supposed to, God came down and he, he talked with them. Adam and Eve tried to, tried to hide and discovered you can't hide from God. They tried to lie to God and discovered you can't lie to God and get away with it. And so God said, you know, I know what you did. I know that you sinned. Now your life is going to be very, very hard. There are going to be consequences for what you did, and there always are when it comes to sin. He gave consequences for Adam, gave consequences for Eve, and even consequences for the devil who tempted them. But after he gave the consequences and said, you know, your life is going to get, much harder in these specific ways. He looked at Satan and said, he said, I'm going to put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and hers, and her offspring one day is going to crush your head as you strike his heel. In other words, God was making a promise of grace that one day I am going to take action that undoes the evil that Satan afflicted in that garden. And it would be a long time before God would send the person who would crush the head of Satan and undo that. But along the way, God gave different previews that he was still coming. For example, one preview was after the nation of Israel had been slaves in Egypt for more than 400 years. God sent a man named Moses to go into the Egyptian to go into Egypt and talk to Pharaoh and say you have to let my people go. But Pharaoh didn't want to let the Israelites go. There were millions of them and they were really the workforce behind the construction of so much of what uh, what Egypt was. And so God through Moses sent different plagues, um, afflicted the Egyptians in a lot of different ways to make life difficult for them and a way that would hopefully humble them underneath God so that they would say, well, God is greater, we don't want to mess with him, and so we're going to do what he says. But, but Pharaoh wasn't willing to do that. Even though God sent all these plagues, he sent plague after plague and different things that he used to afflict them, which were all very difficult, made life very difficult for all of the Egyptians. But the last one was the worst. The last plague is what we, uh, we call the plague of the firstborn, where God said to the Israelites, he said, one night I'm going to come into your camp, and I am going to kill the firstborn son of every family except for the families who do something. For all the families who take their very best lamb, everybody had lambs, but uh, you take your very best lamb and you kill it, and you take its blood and you paint the blood over the door frames of your house. The Lord said, "When when I come to your house, if I see that blood over the door frame, I'm going to pass over your house and I'm going to spare everybody inside of it. And so that's what all the Israelites did. They took these lambs, and these lambs, in a sense, were sacrifices. Lambs that were sacrificed to save the people inside those homes. And that did two things. It not only compelled Pharaoh to set them free that night, because the Lord also went into the households of the Egyptians. And, of course, Pharaoh did not take God seriously, and so he didn't take a lamb and paint any blood anywhere. God went into his home, and Pharaoh's firstborn son died that night. And that was enough to compel Pharaoh to want nothing more to do with God's people. He sent them away. But it was also a picture of what God was going to do someday through the Savior of the world that he promised all the way back in the Garden of Eden in Genesis. It was a picture of, well, what John the Baptist one day called the Lamb of God. John the Baptist was the cousin of Jesus. And John the Baptist was a baptizer. And one day he was baptizing people with the water and Jesus came walking, came walking towards the water and John stopped and he looked and he pointed and he said, look, he said, there's the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. That lamb that was sacrificed all those years back in Egypt was a picture of the lamb of God, Jesus, who was going to be sacrificed to save God's people, but to save everybody, not from the Egyptians, but from our sins. And the reason Jesus was uniquely qualified to do that, because if you, again, look at the mathematical equation of sin, that we are plus sin and minus holiness and deserve death and hell, Jesus was the opposite. He was plus holiness. He was minus sin. And he earned eternal life in heaven. And yet that's not what we see him enjoying as he hung on the cross and took our eternal death. He was suffering punishment For sins on that cross, sins that did not belong to him. He took our sins on himself so that we could take and receive the eternal life that he earned for himself. Isaiah talked about this, the prophet Isaiah, that's an Old Testament book where. It says, we consider him, talking about Jesus, punished by God, him stricken by God, him afflicted. He was pierced, not for his own transgressions and sins, but for ours. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brings us peace with God, well, that was on Jesus. And by his wounds, we get to be healed. We all, like sheep, it says, have gone astray. Each of us turns to our own way. In other words, we have sins, but the Lord laid on him, on Jesus, the sins of everyone. Jesus was punished for our sins so that we could receive his eternal life that was earned by him. That's um, a basic gift that God, is, that God gave us is summarized in the book of John, and maybe the most famous Bible passage in the world, where it says, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. That's why you see John 3.16 in so many places all over the world. That's why many people, even non-Christians, are familiar with it, because it's a teaching of God's grace. That God gives us something that we didn't earn, but somebody else earned for us. So I want you to think about, just as we talk about God's grace, which of these do you think best describes God's grace? That God's grace is the love that we earn by keeping God's laws? That God looks at us and says, good job, now I'm going to love you. God's grace is his love for us because we're better than most others? It's like God looks at us and finds somebody who looks worse than us and says, well, at least you're better, so now I'm going to love you. Is God's grace the love that he shows to people when they first love others? It's like, well, you start showing love, so you know God sees there's potential. And then he shows you his love. Or is God's grace the undeserved love that he gives us through Jesus? The Bible makes it clear it's that last one. It's just something God gives us, even though we don't deserve. Ephesians chapter 2 talks about it so clearly, where it says it's by grace you have been saved. Through faith, it's not from yourselves. It's a gift of God. Not by works, like you don't earn it by what you do. So that no one can boast. We don't earn God's love. He gives it to us as a free gift. That's grace. That's grace. Romans chapter 3 says it this way, it says, you know, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, we know that, but all are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. And the word justified is really important, it's one of our Bible buzzwords. The word justify is kind of like a, well, it's like a courtroom t- term. If somebody is on trial and they're waiting to see what the verdict is, they come in and the judge or the jury, they say, well, we've we've reached a verdict. And I declare the person not guilty. Not guilty of the crime. That person who was just declared not guilty was justified. To justify means to declare someone not guilty of something. And that is what God declares you through Jesus Christ. He looks at you and he sees someone who is not guilty of any sin. If we look at our lives, we know that's not true. But when we look at the sacrifice of Jesus on our behalf, biblically, it is. So there are some Bible buzzwords to keep in mind here that we've already talked about. To justify means to declare someone not guilty of their sins. Sacrifice is the act of offering one life for another, and that's what God did for us with Jesus. He was sacrificed as the Lamb of God. And then, of course, the word grace. God's undeserved love for the world that led him to send his son Jesus to save it. That's grace. And I'm going to leave you with three reasons today why grace is really good news. One of those is found in 2 Timothy chapter 1 where it says that he saved us and he has called us to a holy life, not because of anything we've done, but because of his own purpose and grace. And this grace was given us in Christ Jesus before the beginning of time. But grace has now been revealed through the appearing of our Savior Christ Jesus, who has destroyed death, it says. Because of God's grace, death has no power over you anymore. To illustrate that, I would like to tell you how to um, escape a python attack. (laughs) I found this in a in a handbook for, like, uh, for scouts, you know, or something, or something like that, um, for, for boys groups. But uh, an old handbook of how to escape the attack of a python. A python, you might know, is a giant snake that will swallow its prey whole. And it gave the advice that if you happen to come across a python in the, <laughs> in the wild, uh, don't run away from the python because they'll be able to catch up with you and they'll just, and they'll just devour you. Um, you won't be able to outrun a python. They're too fast. So instead, when you see a python, it said, uh, it said lay down lay down flat on the ground, and press your, press your head down to the ground. The python will try to swallow you from the head down, but if you keep your head up, uh, uh, pressed up against the ground, they'll they'll try, but they'll quickly give up and just go to the other side to start from the feet. And so they'll start devouring you from the feet, just kind of swallowing you whole. They won't start chewing or anything like that, but they'll start devouring you whole. And let the python do that, and don't move. It sounds kind of terrifying. <laughs> It says, let the python get it. Let them get all the way up. And then, once they are close enough up to, like, your chest area and, you know, up here, then that's when you take your pocket knife out and you insert it into the side of their mouth and you just, with a quick slit, it said, just cut them open. They will die instantly and they will have no power over you. The python swallows you, but it doesn't get to keep you. And because of what Jesus has done for us, because of the grace of God that sent Jesus, death is kind of the same way. Death gets to swallow us but it doesn't get to keep us. Death isn't the end of the story anymore. Remember, the eternal life that Jesus won for us is still coming. A second reason that grace is good news for everyone is because it gives us the gift of that eternal life. Romans 6, the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. People search long and hard for the ability to live longer and longer and longer and longer. But nobody's been successful in this plan in finding it. Ponce de Leon is one of the most, one of the more famous people (laughs) looking for the fountain of youth, he called it. He thought that he could find some fountain of youth where if he drank the water, he would be able to live forever, and he thought that he found it down in Florida somewhere, but you know what's true about Ponce de Leon today? He's dead. He's dead. And just like all of us die, but because of the grace given us in Jesus Christ, death isn't the end of the story for the Christian. We have eternal life waiting for us, and we have eternal life waiting for us in a very particular place that Jesus talked about in John chapter 14, where he looked at his disciples, and he knew they were gonna see some very difficult things in the next couple of days, Jesus dying and being taken from them. But he said, don't let your hearts be troubled. Trust in God, trust also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. I'm going through all of this to prepare a place there for you, and I'll come back. To take you to be with me so that you also may be where I am. By the grace of God, we already have places prepared for us in heaven. And Jesus spoke to his disciples that day as if it was already done because it is. Heaven is your home. There's a place prepared for you. It's waiting. These, um, these two lessons we've been talking about, both sin and grace, and, and they have to go hand in hand as you talk about them. We can't appreciate God's grace the gift that he gives us in eternal life without first taking seriously our sins that they are very very real and so in a lot of churches and you know where where i pastor we often remind ourselves of this in very intentional ways we'll start out many of our worship services most of our worship services inviting everyone to confess their sins not specific sins that you know to one another or out loud or anything like that but we remind each other of our sinfulness Um, Sometimes we speak a confession of sins together, saying, I know that I've sinned against God in my thoughts, in my words, and in my actions. We We don't do that to beat ourselves up. We do that to remind ourselves of the beauty of what comes next in those worship services. When I get to stand in front of God's people who have just confessed their sinfulness, who are feeling pretty crummy about that, and say, Hey, God's been merciful to us, and he gave Jesus as a sacrifice for all of our sins. You are forgiven. You are God's child. By the grace of God, it is true. And you know that has an impact on you, like how you look at yourself. How do you look at yourself? Or think of the people in the Bible. Imagine how they looked at themselves. Think of Moses. You know Moses was guilty of murdering someone? Or the Apostle Paul, who before he became a disciple, he was guilty of overseeing the murder of Christians. Or there's King David, who committed adultery and conspired to murder someone. There's the disciple Matthew, who followed Jesus, but before he followed Jesus, he was a tax collector and they didn't have the greatest reputation for being honest. And maybe you can see some of those things in your life too. In fact, Jesus said it's easier to find those things in our lives than we might be able to imagine. He said that, you know, anyone who just hates somebody else is really a murderer. In God's book, it's the same desire. It's just if you actually take someone's life, you actually see it happen. But if you, but God can see our hearts, and so he knows the desires that in, that's in there. He said anyone who lusts after somebody who is not their spouse, it's like they've already committed adultery. God considers them guilty of adultery, just like King David was. The Bible, the Bible tells us not to lie, like Matthew did. We can lie in all sorts of ways, in subtle ways, and blatant ways. And when we do and when we catch ourselves doing those things, we might look at ourselves and say, I know who I am. And I don't like it very much. It's what the Apostle Paul knew about the people he was writing to in the, in the city of Corinth. When he listed off all sorts of sins that they, that they had committed, sins that Paul knew they had committed, and he said, he said, yeah, that's what some of you were what you were. But, he said, you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so what they were then is the same thing that you are right now, a child of God, by the grace of God. We can look at our lives, we can look at our past and say, yeah, sin got me there, sin got me there, that's who I was. But because of what Jesus already did, because of his sacrifice for our sins, because I was washed, because I was sanctified, because I was declared not guilty by the sacrifice of Jesus, I am the same thing that you are, a child of God, forever, always and only by the grace of God.